This is Chapter 111 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we explore the power of memory with New York Times bestseller Patty Callahan Henry. Then we get a wake-up call on climate change from David Wallace-Wells. Author Patty Callahan Henry has always been fascinated by memories. As a graduate nursing student, she studied brain injuries, and she explores the concept as a novelist in her new book, The Favorite Daughter, the story of an estranged family forced to come together after a life-changing diagnosis is this week's Beach Read. Patty tells me hers is one of those rare books where an author's past and a story's future come together. Before I was a novelist, I was a nurse with a master's degree in pediatrics, and my specialty was head injuries, um, and that's what my thesis was. And so I've kind of approached the idea of memory and how it defines us from different angles, but this time it takes center stage. I was going to say, because I highlighted a passage, and funny enough, it's the one that your publicist highlights on the press materials, and I didn't know that until I looked at it this morning. But it's it's about mm-hmm. memories, and you write, memories are alive, and they can take over. They have their own life apart from us. They can cause pain or happiness or keep us from doing things or cause us to shiver inside and wake us up in the middle of the night. And my note here is, that sounds very personal, and you basically just confirmed that with, with the story you just told. Yeah, so I, I have, I'm always thinking about what are they made of? You know, what are, what are memories even made of aside from, you know, connections in our brains? Why do they have so much power if that's all they are? And why do we forget the ones we want to remember and are constantly reminded of the ones we want to forget? And so I loved the juxtaposition in this novel of a, the main character, Colleen, is running away from a horrible betrayal by her sister, even though she's from a tight-knit family. So here we have one person trying to forget And then over here is her father who draws her home again because he's losing his memories. And here we have someone trying to remember. And that juxtaposition of the main character trying to forget while the person she loves the most in the world is trying to remember felt like this great push and pull that would unfold a story, which it did. You also address this concept of ambiguous loss. Can you explain what that is for people who don't know? Absolutely. Um, I was once listening to a podcast because I love that we're doing one right now because they podcasts are my go to um, all the time. They're one of my favorite things to do is find interesting podcasts like yours and and listen in the car, taking walks. And I was listening to a podcast where this woman named Pauline Boss, who's a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, um, and she was talking about this concept she coined ambiguous loss which is, is this feeling that someone is gone from you, but they're not dead. So if, you know, it can be anything from someone who's disappeared to a horrible breakup to what I use it for in this novel is memory loss and Alzheimer's, where the person you love is, is still there, but they aren't there. And so People who want to look at loss as cut and dry, as black and white, as either gone or not gone, we have to be able to start talking about ambiguous loss, where they're present and there's been a rupture in the relationship or in the the way things are, but the person is still present. And I wanted to watch that unfold in this novel, 
where he is fully present. And then at times he it doesn't seem to be himself at all, where he where they are losing him right in front of their eyes. They are losing him. And I wanted to unfold that. There is this great quote by my favorite Irish poet and philosopher, John O'Donohue, who passed away more than a decade ago now, but his work is still alive and well. And he has this great quote about how questions are lanterns. And I love that. Don't you love that? Just this idea that when you take a question, it's a lantern. And I took that question of memory and just kind of shined it on the story to watch it unfold. No, I love that that concept. It's it's so visual and you automatically know exactly what he's saying in that. Yeah, I know. I love it. I think, you know, this book is really it's going to hit a nerve with a lot of readers out there who are who are dealing with family members who have either Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. Is this something you personally have experienced yourself? You write it so well. Oh, thank you. Um, no, not in a family member, but definitely in the medical world. And, you know, looking around at people and helping families who are losing that because of a head injury or because of something going on in their brain, the person they knew is gone, but that person's still sitting there. And so I've been around it. I've dealt with it. I've researched it. Um, I am blessed that right now in my family, none of us have had to face it the way other caretakers are facing it. And it's not the only theme in the novel, of course. You know, we have the theme of home and what that means, forgiveness, betrayal, how families either come together or fall apart when something devastating like Alzheimer's happens. So I, I kind of wove all these different themes into it, but started with the idea of memory. You've written, you know, several books before this. Why was the time right to address memories in this, which you've always been interested in for so long in this book? You know, I wish I had some like really great academic (laughs) answer for this because I always want to, you know, something quotable, but somehow the things that we write about have a timing of their own. You know, I can't force a subject like this year, I am going to write about X and I'm going to find that story and force it out of the world, the imaginary world, the imagination and the inspiration. For me, it's very much a matter of curiosity. I will start to become more and more curious about something. And as my curiosity grows, the story starts to take shape. So, you know, I'm curious about so many things. And if you look at, you know, my body of work, I have, you know, a historical novel last year that's about a real person. And then I have this novel that's, you know, a completely imagined family. And so I, I don't think a lot about like, this is the year or in the consciousness is this. It's more so my curiosity grows about something and then the story grows. And then the hard work begins because the curiosity and the research and the thinking about the characters, that's the fun part, right? It's the sitting down to do the work and then editing it and then editing again and then fixing it again. That's the hard part. So I can't commit myself to that kind of life energy and force if it's not something that I'm already deeply invested in emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of the things for me to spend the next year or two of my life devoted to that. So 
I think that ideas very much have a timing of their own. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert has that book, Big Magic. And I'm not sure how much I agree with it, but I do, in a sense, resonate with this idea that ideas almost have a life of their own. And they kind of tap you on the shoulder. And if you don't pay any, any attention to them, they'll go to someone else. So ideas are always floating around and tapping. And it's when I turn my full curiosity toward them that they start to grow. An idea is almost like a memory. Oh, yes, you nailed it. I feel like I need to write that down. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes, because what are they? How do we even define them? Where do they come from? Why, why do some stick and some fall away? Yeah, it's this very intangible thing, but they're there and we live with them. And, you know, when you really stop to think about it, we, you know, we grieve when we don't have an idea that we need and we grieve when we lose a memory. So I, yeah. I they totally are related. They're totally related. I love this. And I think, too, if you know, if you think about memories as something that floats through us and the more we think about a memory, the more it grows and kind of etches itself in our brain. And I think it's the same with an idea. The more we pay attention to it and think about it, the deeper its groove is going to show up in our mind. It might, might have a lot to do with presence, paying attention. Um, you know, because I know you've had this happen is, you know, somebody tells a story about you and you literally have no memory of that happening. Has that happened to you? It happened yesterday. In fact, <laughs> at a family See, gathering. Especially when you get with family, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And they'll go, oh, Patty, I remember how you always, and I'll be like, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that, I, I'm, it's not that I don't believe you. It's just that I have, and it's. And, and it almost makes me feel panicky. Like, how can somebody else be carrying this memory around of me that I don't even have? I mean, I have, I'm sure I have it in my subconscious. I think everything is stored down there in that compost pile of the subconscious. But for me to have no conscious memory of it while it really impacted you is so fascinating. And, and I do that in The Favorite Daughter. I have the sister's you know, one sister is always remembering it this way, while the other sister's like, yeah, no, that didn't happen. Or it happened a different way. But they're both, and maybe they're both wrong, right? But they're both carrying these memories that are hugely impactful to them that the other person doesn't even, isn't even registering. And hence the title, The Favorite Daughter. Yeah. They, they each think the other is for different reasons. So before I let you go, I want to talk about one of your other themes, that theme of home, uh, mm. where it is, what it is, is central to the book as well. What does home mean to you? You know, that shift and, and part of that is built into the novel. Um, I don't want to give away the last line, but if anybody wants to know what I think is home, the, the last line kind of sums it up. But I, I think home as I think more about it and dwell more about it and have written about it so much, isn't always an exact location. Um, it is when we talk about a house, but I've moved around a lot in my life. Um, I don't have a place that I can say, oh, that's home. That's where I'm from. Um, there's a lot of places I can say that about. And so I've had to redefine home for myself. And sometimes I have to say, this is home for now. Um, but I think the biggest thing about home is it's where you are most yourself. 
where you can be your authentic self and that the people and the place around you reflect and accept that. Well, we've been talking about The Favorite Daughter with Patty Callahan Henry. People should go pick up the book, not only to read the last line, but to read all the lines that come before it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Don't, don't just go to the end, please. <laughs> Thank you for uh, taking some time and talking to us about this today. Oh, I love talking about it. I could do it for hours. It's been a pleasure. Six out of 10 Americans now say they're either alarmed or concerned about global warming. That's according to a survey conducted by Yale and George Mason Universities. In his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, journalist David Wallace-Wells lays out just what's in store if humans fail to act. And as you've probably guessed, it's catastrophically bad. But he tells our Pat Farnack there is reason to hope. The scientific findings that you mentioned in your book um, are, are mind-boggling and, and certainly scary. But one huge takeaway for me, at least, was that things in our world are never going to be the same. Is that accurate, pretty much? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're right now at about 1.1 degrees of global warming um, measured against the pre-industrial average. Mm-hmm. And that may not sound like a lot, but it actually means that we are now living entirely outside the window of temperatures that have enclosed all of human history. The planet is now hotter than it's ever been when humans walked on it. And that means that everything that we know of as human life, our biology, our civilization, our agriculture, even our politics and our social interactions, all of those were developed under climate conditions that no longer prevail. So it's almost as though we've landed on an entirely different planet with an entirely different set of climate conditions, which will continue to change as we go forward. And we're going to try to, we're going to have to figure out what that we've brought with us, what are the culture and the politics and the technology that we've brought with us can endure in these new conditions and what we'll have to abandon. And I think, you know, my book walks through the science quite thoroughly, I think. Mm-hmm. But what's most interesting to me and most, I think, original about the book is that it also addresses itself to these questions of, you know, not what weather will be like or natural disasters will be like. Those are scary. But what will it be like for us to live on this planet in a world where there are that many more natural disasters, where there is that much more famine, where there are that many more hurricanes? Um, And I think these are impacts that may be just as profound or maybe even more profound on the way that we live than the direct climate ones. Because, you know, everything... As I say, everything that we know of as permanent features of modern life really were developed in, you know, in a time under under climate conditions that we can no longer count on. So I think things will change quite dramatically, quite quickly. Now, um, two degrees, even two degrees warmer is pretty dramatic. Yeah, the scientists of the world call that level of warming the threshold of catastrophe. Um, The island nations of the world call it genocide. Genocide. And it's the level that all of the climate agreements, all of the activism has been sort of focused on avoiding however we can. Um, It will take an enormous lift for us to avoid it. I think it's practically speaking impossible. But the UN says that um, we can do it if we have our emissions by 2030 globally. And they say that would require a uh, World War II scale mobilization globally. The Secretary General says we need to start that this year to avoid two degrees of warming. At two degrees, um, many of the biggest cities in South Asia and the Middle East would be unlivably hot in summer, so you couldn't walk around outside during summer. You certainly couldn't work outside during summer without risking heat stroke and death. And that's one reason why by 2050, the UN expects that we could have 
200 million climate refugees um, because some of these cities in South Asia and the Middle East have 10, 12, 15 million people in them. They think it's possible that we could have as many as a billion climate refugees, which is as many people as today live in North and South America combined. Now, I think those estimates are a little high, um, but even if you take the lower one, 200 million, and divide it in half, it's still 100 times the size of the Syrian refugee crisis, which completely changed European politics over the last few years. Say that again. There were only one million Syrian refugees who came to Europe, and the whole populist wave that's completely transformed European politics is a result of that influx of, um, of refugees, one million. And the UN expects that by 2050, we will have 200 million climate refugees. Um, That, to me, just tells you how totally scrambled and transformed our politics will be, our culture will be, perhaps even our sense of nations will be as soon as 2050. Because if we have really a meaningful emptying out of the equatorial band of the planet, um, those people are going to go somewhere, and they're going to change the societies in which they um, settle. Um, It will also mean that probably parts of the world that have such rich legacies and histories that we think of them as true whole civilizations may have to be entirely abandoned. You know, Bangladesh, much of Bangladesh will be literally uninhabitable within a few decades. And, you know, a thousand years ago, we would have looked at that culture and thought, this is a this is an empire, it's a civilization, it's that scale, it has that rich a history. And it may be that those lands are entirely underwater or so significantly underwater that no one can meaningfully live there anymore. And that's just an incredible tragedy, but it's one tragedy among a million that we'll be seeing over the over the rest of the century. But, you know, I'm not someone who thinks that um, my book is called The Uninhabitable Earth. That's a bit hyperbolic. I don't think this planet is going to become unlivable as a whole. And I don't think that civilization will collapse at any point, you know, over the next century or two, even if we make no change to our pattern on warming. But I do think that all of our lives will be transformed and remade by this force, which I think will be as profound um, a, you know, a driver of our lives in the 21st century, as say modernity was in the 19th century, or financial capitalism in the 21st in the late 20th century, it will be everywhere. It'll be in the way that we talk about and you know talk about food and eat food. It'll be the way that we talk about energy, about the way that we talk about our our family planning, our talk about our politics, um, the way we relate to nature, the way we relate to technology, our sense of history, and whether we can continue to count on the future as a more prosperous fulfilling time as we've been sort of raised to expect over the last half century or depending on where you live, half century or several centuries of increasing prosperity. I think climate change really makes that a much more precarious proposition. And I don't yet know myself, and I think we collectively certainly don't know, what life would be like if we abandoned some of these ideas that, you know, history moves us forward and um, economic growth is a reliable thing to count on in the future um, and that sort of thing. Well, isn't this so immense, though? I mean, you can almost not really even think about it without just going off the rails. And that's why people don't, ah, I'll think about it tomorrow yeah, or I won't think about it at all. I think we all have psychological reflexes and biases that make it much harder for us to look squarely at the science that tells us what we're facing. And I feel that way myself. I mean, I've been sort of buried in this research for a few years, and I still, I see it in my own life. I still live in compartmentalization and denial. I'm I'm able to walk around on a sunny day and enjoy it. I'm able to, you know, I was um, looking up the other day, looking up at some, you know, some beautiful mountains. And I, before I st- started to panic about what the future held for them, <laughs> I was, you know, I had a few moments of real, um, 
you know, awe at the majesty of nature. And, and you have a baby. I have a baby too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, I do think that there is reason for hope. Um, I think that, first of all, we, you know, in general, but maybe with climate especially, we have an obligation to kind of fight for the sort of world that we want to live in and that we want our loved ones to live in before that story, and rather than giving up before that story is over. I think that's the situation we find ourselves in with climate, which is to say, the main reason that things are changing is because of human action. It's because we're putting more carbon into the atmosphere. And so when I talk about some of these really horrifying outcomes, you know, at four degrees, which is what we're on track for by the end of the century, we could have a global GDP that's 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. That's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression, and it would be permanent. There'd be parts of the planet that could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. We could have twice as much war because there's a relationship between temperature and conflict. We could have agricultural yields that were only half as bountiful as they are today, and we'd be using them to feed 50% more people. When I talk about all of these scenarios, they can seem, even to me, totally overwhelming, paralyzing. But ultimately, they're a reflection of our power over the climate because if we get to those points, it will be because of what we do from here on out. And on the flip side of that is that means that we can choose to take a different course. If we put less carbon into the atmosphere and hopefully in short order put zero carbon into the atmosphere, we can avoid those outcomes. So really, it is up to us as, as paralyzing, overwhelming, and horrifying as those stories can seem. Ultimately, they are a story of human power and we – we invented climate change. We are making climate change. And theoretically, if we make different decisions going forward, we can avoid many of these worst outcomes. But, you know, there are a lot of obstacles there. There are a lot of human obstacles there. Um, we've done very little over the last few decades, even knowing how big the challenge was to address it. You know, I write in the book, I was raised to believe that climate change was quite slow, that it would be coming at the very fastest at a timescale of many decades. James Hansen, who's one of the most outspoken kind of alarmist climate scientists, his book for a general audience is called Storms of My Grandchildren, because that's how he understood the threat. But half of all of the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere in the entire history of humanity have come in the last 30 years. We've brought the planet from a stable situation to the brink of catastrophe in just 30 years. Now, that's since Al Gore published his first book on warming, it's since the UN established its climate change body, the IPCC, which means we've done that damage, as much damage as we did in all the millennia of human history before, we did that damage knowingly. We've done as much damage knowingly as we ever managed in ignorance, and we've done very little over those last three decades to change course at all. In fact, every year in those 30 years has been the worst year for emissions on record. So what do we do individually? And is it... A lot of people say, hey, I'm one person. It doesn't matter if I recycle or if I put in solar panels. And what are you saying? What are you doing as an example uh, to help? Well, actually, my, my perspective, I'm a little bit unusual on the environmental left in the sense that I, I basically don't think that individual action is all that important. You know, I think that people should try to live their values if they want to feel responsible, relate responsibly to the natural world and they want to reduce their carbon footprint, that's great. That's noble. I applaud them for it. It's also valuable in the sense that it signals to others that you can live a prosperous, fulfilling life and still be considerably more responsible. And I think it also signals to policymakers that we're willing to make changes in our lives um, to address this problem. All that's valuable. But I start from the premise that to stabilize the Earth's climate at any temperature, even a hellish four or five degrees, um, even at that point, 
even if we're emitting just a sliver of the carbon that we're emitting today, we'll still be warming the planet somewhat additionally. So in order to stabilize it, we don't just need to reduce carbon emissions, we need to zero them out entirely. And when you think about that challenge, if you can imagine a world in which the whole planet has voluntarily given up air travel, has voluntarily gone vegan, has is only driving electric cars, has totally remade our infrastructure and our transportation systems and the way that we grow agriculture in order to totally eliminate the carbon footprint. If you can imagine a world where that is done entirely voluntarily, entirely at the grassroots level, then we would then it is then it is conceivably possible that individual action can get us to a solution. But I can't believe that. And I think if everyone I know, if everyone who is like me in the United States, even in the West, even in the whole world, if everyone is who is mindful about climate, gives up these things entirely, we still will have hundreds of millions, probably billions of other people who are continuing to want to fly, yeah. eat red meat. And for me, that means we need policy changes that can really dramatically change the landscape of possibilities, what behavioral economists call the choice architecture of our lives, such that the planes are still flying, but they're zero carbon planes. Or the beef we're still eating is comes from cattle that have been raised in ways that are carbon neutral or even um, carbon negative rather than carbon positive. And in both of those cases, we can achieve that through R&D, through legislation and um, regulation. But it takes large-scale policy drivers to make it happen because the power of individual consumers is just really quite small when compared to the power of politics. Um, and so for me, I think the most important thing that anyone can do is to vote to support people who prioritize action on climate, hold them to account, and in between those election years, um, organize and maybe even most importantly, talk about the issue with one another. Because for so long, there's been a bit of a conspiracy of silence around this. The majority of Americans are either alarmed or concerned about climate change, and yet it's only a sliver of Americans who have conversations more than once a week about it with someone they love. That means that we're all carrying around this anxiety without making it public, without making it political. And um, that's, I think, one reason why we've had such inert politics on, on the issue. Another reason is for a very long time, the storytelling from journalists and advocates was um, designed to reassure the public rather than inspire them to action through um, sort of urgent rhetoric. That's changing a bit. And I think the last reason why we've had such little action, economists really used to believe that um, – there was a humanitarian cost to climate change, but that it would be so expensive to take action that it probably wasn't worth it. But that conventional wisdom just in the last few years has really been flipped on its head. Now, any economist you ask would say we really do need to take action fast. We can't afford not to. We can't afford not to. And the opportunities actually uh, for economic growth and, and profit are quite immediate right in front of us if we can take them. For, both of, for all three of those reasons, I think that the, um, the landscape is changing and we will be seeing much more action very quickly. Would you run for office yeah. ever? Have you thought about it? My, I mean, you my, are my, like my an evangelist and, <laughs> and passionate about it. Yeah, my agent really wants me to run for office. Um, I mean, I am um, I'm a very politically engaged person. I, the, you know, I still feel myself primarily a journalist who is really fundamentally a storyteller and an observer. And I think actually that's one of the reasons that my book has found such a meaningful audience is that it wasn't written as a work of advocacy. It was written, I mean, the science advocates for itself. And I think walking through what we know about the world that we'll be living in 
it, it's impossible to not be motivated and yeah. mobilized by that. But my main perspective has always been as a storyteller with a kind of a sociological intellectual interest in the way that our lives will be transformed. And that, to, at the moment at least, remains my main, um, my main role, my main natural role. Well, you've blown me away again. <laughs> <laughs> After reading your book, I was I was just uh, blown away, and now I am again. And uh, it's something that everybody needs to to read. I was going to say Americans, but certainly globally. But uh, thank you so much for coming in and for uh, talking about it with us. We've been talking with uh, David Wallace Wells, and his book is The Uninhabitable Earth. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's the end of another chapter. Next time, we talk to an author slash psychotherapist about her new thriller and find out if her high-powered sociopath protagonist is based on someone she knows in real life. Hope that got you hooked. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.